We are in our series, ready? We're getting near the end, actually. We only have just a few more weeks left, and uh, we want to finish strong. And then actually, we're going to be heading into a series on um, relationships, calling it all about relationships. We're going to be learning about relationships, uh, all the relationships that we have in life. And then we'll be going into a series this summer, just to give you a sneak preview, going through a series on prayer. Uh, and then uh, that will take us into, I believe, the fall time. Where we'll be actually starting off our fall going through the life of Joseph. So we want you to just give you a big a little sneak preview of that. Now, we are in uh, our series on Second Thessalonians, and it's been a pretty action-packed book, and it's coming near to the end. And we see Paul now requesting prayer for the mission that he has before him. When I think of mission, I think about a story that I encountered uh, several years ago. I was in Israel. And I uh, was taking a tour with a college group, and we came to this one area where there was a, a big cemetery, and it's slightly different. I always like to see how different cultures bury or treat their dead. It's, it's different in each culture. And in Israel, instead of having headstones, they actually have an entire tombstone. It goes the full length of the body. And our guide was telling us a story from the, ni- from the sixth Six-Day War of 1967. And he was telling the story about this man that was buried right beneath our feet. And he, he tells the story about there was a conflict going on, and there was this uh, young man who was a messenger. And he had this message that he had to take uh, from one end of the city to another. And he had to run through gunfire. And as he was running through with the message, uh, a bomb went off. And then he was thrown back, and he gets up trying to continue his message. He's plodding on one foot in front of the other when he realizes that this bomb that had gone off had actually damaged his arm, and it had taken it off, severing his arm that had been detached from his body, and he had gone on without the message. And he turned around. He somehow had strength, went back, picked up the dead arm, pulled the message out of the dead arm, and took a few more steps when he fell dead. And, and you can see that this, this, this young man had incredible strength. He knew his mission was to do whatever it took to get that message to whoever it needed to get to. What was even more incredible was when our guide took his foot off of the part of the tombstone that covered up the dates, and you see that this young man was only 12 years old. He was just a boy. And that he, but even then, he knew that he had a message that he'd been instilled with, and he would do whatever it took, even if it meant giving his life, to make it known. You know, as Christians, we have the greatest message in the world that God has given unto us. And he didn't ask our help in creating the world. He didn't ask our help in solving all of the world's problems. He didn't ask us to set up great financial systems or or create a lot of technology. What he asked our help in is making his name known among the nations. He's given us a message to take forth to people. And we must do whatever it takes to make it known. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul is asking for prayer. He's saying that we, I'm ready to do whatever it takes, but I need your help. I need to show you what it means to be a follower of Christ and for what it means for the gospel to go forth, not just for me, but for you as well. Because each one of us have been entrusted. It wasn't just for some that he gives the great commission, and it's not optional of the Christian life. 
It is a command that God has given to every one of us to go and make his name known among the nations. And through the Apostle Paul, we can see not only his responsibility, but we can get an idea, an example of how we can participate in the proclamation of the gospel and how we together can do whatever it takes for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God to bless our message time. Father, we ask you to speak to us draw our hearts closer to you, and show us how we can order our lives to do whatever it takes that your name might be made known and praised and made famous among the nations. For your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text today, shall we? We are going to start off in verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Finally, so he's concluding his thought. Remember, he'd already written one letter to the Thessalonians, giving them instruction. Again, this is a young church. They didn't know a whole lot. They hadn't been privileged to go to Village Bible Church in their young or youth or learn all the things about the word of God or sit in Sunday school classes or attend seminary. They didn't have any of those options. These, in some ways, are what we would call foxhole Christians. They came uh, to faith in Christ. Many came from pagan backgrounds. Some come from Jewish backgrounds. It's an ethnically mixed congregation, multi-ethnic church, and they, they're learning on the fly. And Paul is writing, and, and he had written to them and given them several instructions in his first letter, and then he writes in his second letter. Now he's concluding the second letter, and he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Now this is in the imperative. It's also in the emphatic position, and it's in the present tense, which means this. He's saying that I'm commanding you to pray for me. And not just one time, but I want you to do it all the time. As a matter of fact, I'm putting such an emphasis on prayer because I need and covet your prayers. See, for many people, and, and you might have heard the expression, and, and people might have asked you this, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Because for many of us, that's what it is. Prayer doesn't, it's, again, it's an optional thing. It's something that we need just in case of emergency. Where we can say, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. That's where we see prayer at, in the box. And God is saying, no, no, no. And through Paul, he's saying it's extremely important. And Paul is saying, I need you to pray for us that we might fulfill our ministry, that the word of God might go forth into all the nations. In other words, I want you to cry out to God for the gospel. See, if we're to do what God has called us to do, and if for the gospel to go forth, it requires us to cry out to God for the gospel. Now, let me tell you what that means, because I think for many of us, we have a very uh, strange understanding of what prayer is. Prayer, we, we know, is a conversation with God, right? But not every conversation is the same. And, and what I mean by that is this. Don't think you're praying just because you're uttering a lot of words and throwing out a lot of requests. You know, I, Howard Macy once said, when we, when we think that we have to fill our prayers just with a lot of words, he goes, that's not prayer. That's filibuster. That's not prayer. Sometimes what we need to do is just simply be in the presence of God and be silent before God. Have you ever just been silent before God? Prayer can be silent before God. Here, here's what I mean by that. I want you to think about the, the, the relationships that you have in your life. And when you meet someone for the first time and it gets quiet, what do you do? You, you want to fill it with conversation. Why? Because it gets awkward. And in that case, awkward isn't exactly awesome. 
And you feel it. And it's the people that you don't know very well that you feel like you have to carry on conversation. It's the people that you know the best that you don't necessarily have to talk to the entire time. For example, my best friend growing up, his name is Adam Johnson. And Adam and I wanted to go to a concert when we were in college. We went to, so we went to this concert together. We had to drive three hours to get there. We were in the car for three hours and didn't say a word. And it was the best trip I've ever had in my entire life. And it's not just because we're men and we didn't need to talk the entire time. And I know women can be silent too. But there was something just about being in one another's presence that we wanted. And we, we were familiar with one another that we didn't have to talk and fill it. That we just longed to be together. You know, my buddy. See, the same thing is with God. I think the reason that many of us feel like we have to fill it is because we don't know God very well. See, Paul is asking us and, and saying, I want you to, to pray for me, but sometimes it just means going before God, seeking his presence, seeking his face, and then letting him speak to us, and then asking God to change our hearts and being silent, and letting him speak to us. There's sometimes when we're going to the presence of God, when God just brings his presence, into, uh, uh, you just sense it there. And you know that he's there, and you don't have to pray. And it's when the Spirit of God intercedes, as it says in Romans chapter 8, with groans. Because we groan for God to be made known. We groan for God to show himself. We need to go beyond our own personal request. And we want to pray for God to glorify his name. And you know what? When you pray that prayer, God will answer. When we pray and ask God to do something that he has purposed and said within his word to do, he will do it. One of the things that I've asked God to do is I've asked God for our church to be uh, a place where really God gets glory. Now, you've heard me pray that, pray that, but what I mean by that is this. I'm asking him for to bring the lowest, the least, and the lost. I'm asking him to bring the disabled, the broken. I'm asking him to bring and make us a diverse church in every which way with GEDs and PhDs, or dropouts or whatever it is. I'm, lo- I'm, I'm asking him to bring all nations here. You know why? Because no one person can get glory for that. Because that has to be a mark of God. I'm asking him to do what only he can do. I'm asking him to bring the, the worst possible sinners and almost every faith background here. I'm asking him to bring the atheist and the agnostic. I'm asking him to bring the, the sexually immoral and the broken. I'm not asking him to bring safe people. I'm asking him to be what he be and bring the people that he wants us to, to, to have here because I want it to be a place and a people that no person can get glory for, that when people look at it, they say, only God could do that. See, God does that. Have you, have you seen that within his word time and time again? A great example of that is in the life of Gideon. Gideon has an army. Remember, if you remember the story, Gideon has an army. I want to say, of, I can't remember the exact idea off the top of my head, but uh, I want to say it's around, what is it? Some of my other biblical scholars, is it 30,000? Yeah, 33,000, something like that. And he's fighting an army of 130,000. And then God says, you have too many. And 23,000 leave and leaves him with 10,000. And he says, you still have too many. And so he, has, he does the test with drinking from the brook. Remember, some lapped, some was like, were like dogs. And then he said, those who, who didn't do it this way had to leave, so only 300 were left. So it was an army of 300 to face an army of 130,000. Why? Because only God could receive glory there. See, God, has, God doesn't want us to, to celebrate our methods, personalities, charisma, style, show. He wants to show a place in a people where only his power and his spirit 
can get credit. And that's what we're asking for. And Paul is calling on the church to pray because, see, these are mechanisms that have spiritual power. And they, they transform hearts and minds. The problem is, is we don't tap into it. We're too busy relying on our methods rather than these tools that God has given us. And one is prayer. And here Paul is saying that he is placing such a power on prayer because, see, God has given us the power to demolish strongholds. It's not about government power. It's not about having the the latest and greatest stealth technology to take out the enemy because those things only change the surface. It's only God that can go great down there and change the heart. And that's what he's saying here. I want you to cry out to God for the gospel. Pray that the word of the Lord might speed ahead. I love that picture because it's the idea, uh, especially in the the Greek understanding of things, they had the Greek games, and the word literally means to run, and it's exploding out. And you you ever seen a runner exploding out of the blocks? Anybody ever seen Usain Bolt? He's the fastest man in the world. Run. I mean, a guy's like six foot seven Jamaican guy, okay? This guy is wicked fast. And when you see him in 100 meters and he gets down there and he explodes out of the blocks, that's what Paul's saying here. I want, to see them, I want to see the word of God speed ahead. I want to see it break out from everything else. I want to see the word of God explode in people's lives. That's the point we've got to write down. I want to see the word of God explode. Do you want to see God's word explode? I do. I want to see it explode into people's lives because you know what? There are so many people in the world that do not yet know who Jesus is. We shared this statistic before. There are about 1.3 billion Muslims in the world. There are 700 million people that come from Hindu backgrounds. Do you know 86% of that number don't know one single Christian? Not one. Now, many of you have grown up in a world where we have churches on many different corners. I mean, I myself, the first time that I ever drove here, I remember coming down Orchard Road, getting off of 88, coming around the corner, and then you see this big, giant Lutheran church in St. Paul's, and you drive down, you see Westminster on your left, the Church of Christ on the other corner there, and and then I see St. Mark's over there, and I'm like, what will I do here? Is it competing churches on Sunday morning? I don't care to compete with other churches. That's not our job. I can care. We're all in the same business. But it's to make God known to people that yet don't yet know him. That's my heart's passion. I hope that's your heart's passion. That's what Paul's passion was, is that the word of the Lord might explode. It might speed ahead. And it might be also, look at that word there. He says honored, honored, that it might be esteemed, esteemed. That's the next part that you can write down, letter B in your notes, that it might be esteemed. What it means is honored is this. See, Paul knew, and Paul had been on some ministry trips, and he'd, he'd preached, and there'd been fruit, but he'd not seen fruit in these other places like he'd seen among the Thessalonians. I mean, the Thessalonians, they were responding greatly, and they were honoring the Word of God because they'd seen its power at work in a person's life. See, when we talk about the honoring of God's Word, it's recognizing it as it really is, the Word of God. That's why when you get in your car after church, don't just throw your Bible. This is the Word of God. We're to honor the Word of God. Because we recognize that it's testifying about who God is and His plan of salvation for us. I I posted a video on my Facebook page the other day of Chinese Christians receiving the Word of God for the first time. 
don't know if you saw, if you're Facebook friends with me, and you might have seen it, and it's great. This pallet opens up, the box opens up, people flock to it, and you see people weeping with tears of joy because they'd never seen or had a Bible in their lives. Or the same in Papua New Guinea, when you you see these people, uh, there's this great ceremony of them receiving the Bible in their own language for the first time, and the whole village shows up as the plane is brought in, and the pilot hands them the box, and they come with great ceremony and dedication for the Word of God, because they had seen its power at work in their lives. I I don't know, how many of you have ever seen the story called Itau? Anyone ever heard the story of Etau? It's a fascinating story. It's also called the Mook story. They're the Mook people in Papua New Guinea. And a missionary, uh, a couple, went into this village. They got to know the people over years' time. They started learning the language, writing it down, putting it. They had no written language. Helped write it down. And then they started to tell them the story of God. They called it God Talk. And they began with the nature of God and who he is. And and the whole village would show up as he would tell this story about who God is. And he would talk about the spirit world and Satan and his angels. Now they fell. And then they began teaching lessons from the Old Testament, setting it up and showing the sacrifice of, of, they were talking of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And, And the people were really troubled by this story that God would call Abraham to sacrifice his son. And it's amazing in the, the story, four men actually, after they hear the story and he leaves it, kind of with a cliffhanger, what does Abraham do? Four men were so troubled by the story that they came to the missionary at four separate times and they said, God must provide another sacrifice then. It's an incredible story. And they, they were drawn into it. And, and finally, they, it leads to the culmination of Jesus. And they love Jesus. He's the hero. He heals. He defeats the powers of darkness. He's removing demons. They loved him. And they couldn't believe when they see this drama played out of Jesus being crucified. They couldn't understand how the hero would be crucified. And then he was buried and was resurrected from the dead. And as they're telling the story from the resurrection, this buzz starts to happen in the middle of the, the, the audience in Itau, I mean, of the Mook people. And they start crying out, Itau, Itau, Itau. And it's, it is true, it is true. And they start jumping up and down, the whole village does. And they grab the missionary and they put him on their hands. It's true, it's true, it's true. See, the amazing thing is, is when you, when you hear about what they had come from, I mean, these were people that worshipped ancestral spirits. And they would have this, uh, one of the men would put on this mask that no woman was allowed to see. And they would dance around and they said it was an ancestral spirit. And if any woman would see this ancestral spirit, they would be executed. And one man's mother had seen it. They took her out into the middle of the, the jungle and they'd killed her. Because that's what their spirits and their, their, had dictated, their belief system had dictated. But see, these people who had been... Uh, animists and worshiped ancestral spirits, God uses them through the, I mean, transforms them through the word of God and the proclamation of his story. And now they are missionaries reaching out to other tribes within Papua New Guinea. And they have planted now 23 different churches as well as seven seven schools. Why? Because the word of God took root in that people. That's what happens in a culture. That's what the word of God does. It transforms from the inside out. See, that's the difference, by the way, and this is where my, my Muslim friends, I must say that I disagree with you when we're talking about the Quran. Because, see, the Quran expects you to conform uh, to it, meaning its language, everything about it. You're to learn Arabic. And if it's translated outside of its language, then it loses its power. And, see, the whole culture must conform to it, accepting Arabic traditions and dress and speech. But, see, the, the Word of God comes into a culture, learns a language, and transforms it from the inside out. 
See, God, our God can speak in any language, and he desires to transform from the inside out. That's why, by the way, that we advocate so highly for a Bible translation, and we want the Word of God to go in people's heart language because we want it to transform their heart and not be a foreign religion, but it has to be their heart language. Because, see, the gospel transforms from the inside out. And, see, Paul had seen that, and he prays that it might continue, not only that it would explode among them, but it would be esteemed, and it would also be effective. It will be effective. It will accomplish the purpose for which God had t- intended it. And that's what God has promised us, that the Word of God will accomplish every purpose for which he intended it, that it will not return back void. It will always, it will cut the heart or it would bring healing. It will show a person their sin and will also reveal to them the Savior. So we pray that it would explode. We pray that it would, it would be esteemed and we pray that it would be effective and that we would be delivered from our enemies. Now, the word delivered here is the same as in the Lord's Prayer. The adjectives wicked and evil convey the idea of morally perverse people who maliciously obstruct the gospel, like the people in Thessalonica who had instigated a riot in order to hinder the preaching of the gospel. Now, Paul is speaking in general terms of those who oppose the gospel and its message and includes all those who policies or activities attempt to halt the spread of the saving message and work to the detriment of the messengers. That's why he says not all have faith. Not all share your hope, your desire. People will resist you, and we can pray for to be delivered from our enemies. And it seems like that's happening more and more in our own culture here in the United States. Matter of fact, at North Carolina University now, you have to have a permit to preach the gospel. Did you know that? To speak the name of Jesus, you have to get a permit. You can talk about science. You can talk about evolution. You can talk about whatever sexual proclivity you want. But to talk about Jesus now, you have to have a permit. See, that's where we're at is our culture. And we see this all throughout other lands. This can be individual. This could be in your workplace. This could be in your school. This could be in your neighborhood. And this could be in other countries, even governments. You think about what's going on in North Korea right now. I mean, this is a people that have been surrounded. They are under the iron fist of a dictator. And the God, I mean, that is the, the great, uh, open doors has said, this is the, the country that is most hostile to the gospel right now. And these people, I mean, it is horrid what they are going through. The gospel is being trying to be kept from them. And we, and we have to understand that we have the divine power, I mean, the power to demolish strongholds. That government, it's not going to come down through force, but through prayers and people praying. And then that changes a person's heart. And when that person's heart's changed, then they want to go to action. And that helps put pressure. See, it's changing people from the inside out. And that's what we need to see going on. and, And you've seen it happen before. That's what happened within Russia. I have so many of my friends that have come from Russian backgrounds. And when the Iron Curtain went up and and atheism became the state religion, it was the grandmothers, by the way, that kept the faith alive, that are praying and teaching their children in secret the truth and the words of God. And there were people from the outside praying for the Iron Curtain to go down, praying for the leadership to turn their hearts to them. I have so many friends that have come from Romania or Hungary or from Russia or Ukraine or Estonia or Latvia, any part of the Soviet bloc, who they tell story after story of parents or grandparents that took great risks to make the gospel known, praying that God would remove those walls and those walls would come down. 
The gospel now is free to go about. It's incredible to see. And so Paul is praying and is asking us to pray that the gospel, I mean, will not only be that explode, it'll be esteemed and effective, and we can be delivered from our enemies. And that might be in your workplace. It might be in your neighborhood. That someone that might be in your life, I mean, that, that God has allowed there, that he, they might keep you, or keep you weighted down so much emotionally, spiritually, that you can't focus. Pray that God would remove them, and if he doesn't remove them, pray that God would give you the strength and the grace to deal with them and to handle them. Because, see, sometimes God, God, God will, we can pray for the, to be delivered from our enemies, and, and sometimes he, he will. There's other times that he's got a, a greater purpose that we don't yet understand. But we have to understand, one thing we do need to understand is that the, even the devil, as he comes against you, is, the God, is God's devil. Or as Martin Luther said, he's like a dog on a leash. He's a dog on a leash. You think about the book of Job. The devil couldn't do anything to Job without God's allowance. We need to understand that. That the devil is limited in that regard. And we can pray to be delivered from our enemies, but I also pray that God would give us the strength to deal with them if he doesn't deliver them, deliver us from them. Now, no one said that living the gospel is going to be easy. Matter of fact, it's going to be quite costly. As D.A. Carson said, he says, as the social cost of claiming to be a Christian increases, the percentage of nominal Christians decreases. Let me read that to you again. As the social cost of claiming to be a Christian increases, the percentage of nominal Christian Christians decreases. In other words, when it gets harder, there's not that many people that are going to try to be or call themselves a follower of Christ anymore. When it gets harder, what are we to do? Because the world is coming in around us right now. I mean, many of you have grown up in the United States. You don't even recognize the country that you grew up in. It's became so ambivalent, so antagonistic to the gospel. Many of you have come from different cultures. I praise God for you because I believe that in many ways that you are the key to help reviving the American church. I really do. To strengthen us, to rebuke us. Because many of you have been through hardship and opposition, and it's not been easy. And for those in America that have grown up with the comfortable Christianity, you stand as a testimony to us to inspire us greater things, to teach us, to grow together, to encourage one another, to share ideas, to share backgrounds, to share resources. That's why I believe, by the way, that God has brought the nations here. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to share this just as an aside. When I was in New England, New England, I mean, for those who are at all familiar with church history, was a site of great revivals in America. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. I mean, these are amazing revivals going on. But New England has gone almost completely pagan. It's one of the most um, unevangelized regions of the United States. I live there. I understand it. I lived right next door to Salem, Massachusetts. Remember the so-called the witch hunts, the witch trials? Did you know that on October, Halloween, 75,000 witches show up? Not joking. 75,000, and they flood the streets of Salem, Massachusetts to celebrate. It's crazy to think of. It's really crazy. But you know what's going on? I mean, you, you look at the churches, they're very small. 40, 50 people, they're getting older. There's not a long young people in many of them. But you see some churches growing. Do you know what those churches are? Those churches are of refugees, immigrants, internationals moving in and transforming from the inside out. 
Now, I'm not saying that God's done with the, the, quote, American church, but I think that God has brought the nations to us, many who don't yet know Jesus, so that they can hear about Jesus here. But I believe that God has brought many other groups here to help revive the American church. Because, you know, Christianity is changing in the United States of America. And here's what I mean by that. In the year 1900, 9 out of 10 Christians came from Indo-European backgrounds, which means this. 9 out of, Christians in the wor- nine out of 10 Christians in the world were white, like me, or peach, pink, okay? But by the year 2025, 6 out of 10 Christians will be in the global south, which means that their skin will be a different color. And, and if you would have put it on a map in the year 1900, the statistical center of Christianity in the world would have been Spain. By the year 2025, it will be Nigeria. Because Africa, my brothers understand this, Christianity is exploding in Africa. It's exploding in Asia. It's exploding in South America. It's not decreasing, it's increasing. And God's brought the nations here, and he's going to use us to help to, to see this revival happen. Firmly believe that every every ounce of my being. And I believe that God has helped make us a testimony to what he wants to do in the world. And I believe that God is just scratching the surface and showing us what that is. But we're praying that the gospel would explode. Now, in order for us to find strength to do this, we need to cling to his promises. Cling to his promises. I'm going to go through these points rather quickly. Cling to the promises of God. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful... He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. First of all, these promises come out of the very person of God and his perfections, sometimes called his attributes, his characteristics. God is faithful in his essence. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. He will not fail. It is against his nature to do so. They are rooted in his perfections, meaning that God's name is behind it, and he will guarantee its passage. And we can completely trust that. So we see that it's rooted in his perfections. He will plant us, plant us. Look back at our text. He says he will establish. Establish in Greek means to establish a support that fixes, to strengthen, to make firm, to consider, render constant, confirm in one's mind. He will plant a firm foundation. In other words, he will establish and he will plant us. So much so that he will intercede on our behalf. We get a picture of this in Mark chapter 13, verse 9, where Paul says, or or, sorry, excuse me, John Mark says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. These are those that persecute the church of Christ. And you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel first must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial... And deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. That's the part I want to focus on. He's saying that God will establish you in that hour, in that time of need, in that time of trial, God will intercede and He will strengthen you, make you robust, make you firm in your faith for those who are true believers in Christ. Because we're going to have a time of persecution, that is for sure, and it's already going on. and It's always been going on. We're just seeing it more now in our own country and in the countries of the world because of media. Now look at verse 3. And guard you against the evil one. The idea there is being continually vigilant of a shepherd looking over his sheep. In other words, God himself will protect you. He will protect you. 
protect you from who? The evil one. Again, as we said before, the, no, nothing can happen to you by the devil without God's allowance. And God will protect you. God will establish you. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to hurt. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through pain. It means that God will give you the grace and the strength to bear up underneath it or to handle it if necessary even to die if necessary. As one missionary said to those who were persecuting him, he said, you may kill us, but you will not hurt us. In other words, I might die, but you can't take away what God has given me. What I have in him, you cannot take away. God will protect us as we continue to proclaim and glorify his name. He will be with us. And remember, when we do go through the fire, just like in the book of Daniel, he's there with us, just as he was with them. Now, notice verse 4, where Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. See, Paul knows that what God has started, he will complete. He was confident that they were doing what he had laid out in his first letter, and he was also confident that they would continue to do so. In other words, he was confident that they and us would carry on to the end would carry on to the end and perseverance. This is persevering. See, as Christians, it's not in just the, the one time I'm a Christian, let me sign the sheet. It's the idea of continuing, following in the way, walking with him, following, because Jesus is the way, is the pathway. And Christianity was even called the way. It's a life that is seen after we place our faith in Christ. Not that we're saved by works. No, we're not. We're saved by faith in Christ. But it's after our place, we place our faith that the works of God and the, we do and show our, our love for God, not to pay Him back, but just to show uh, we are stewards of all that God has given to us. Now, for us to carry on to the end requires us to labor on in obedience. Labor on in obedience. Notice that they were doing what Paul had commanded. They hadn't stopped, but we're doing it right now. And if we want the gospel to go forward, then it means continuing on, working out our salvation in fear and trembling, forsaking sin, living holy lives, and seeking the salvation of the lost by helping those around us, which means visiting the sick, taking care of the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, and the poorest among us, helping restore dignity to a person. It is work, by the way, because we want to meet people's needs. And people, when we think of needs, we think of shelter, food, clothing. But those aren't just the need. A person's needs go beyond just the physical. There is a mental, there is an emotional that is there. Part of us, can, what we can do is help restore the dignity of a person. I was talking with someone the other day who was going through a very hard time in a relationship, and it's because they're not treating the other, per, they're treating the other person just as yeses and nos with obedience and not talking and, and, and interacting to their dignity. And we, we are human beings, and we want to help restore dignity to a person. And as we do so, we share the truth of who Jesus is, showing that God cares for them, and we do too. So we need to labor on in obedience. Now the question is, is where do we draw strength? Where do we draw encouragement? If we're to carry on to the end, it's going to be, we're going to become weary. We're going to become tired. If we're going to be continuing on to live this life, we're going to get discouraged. And where do we draw strength? Paul, Paul knew. This is why he ended this with verse 5. Look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. See, Paul directs us to look to the love of God. Why does he do that? Why, why doesn't he say, look to the mercy of God? Look to the goodness of God. Why does he say, look to the love of God? 
I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of puzzling if you just stop and think about it. Why, why does he focus expressly on the love of God? I, be, I mean, why not his mercy? I mean, they're all, these are all great, but not one of them motivates the way, the way love does. See, love is the greatest of motivators. Or as Paul said to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. See, love motivates like nothing else does. I mean, think about it. Think about this. Think about it. If you were married or you're dating or engaged, think about this. Think about the time where you realized that that person that you cared for loved you. Do you remember that? Think back. I remember when my wife said, I love you, I wanted to explode. I was like jumping out. And, and you know me, I'm a pretty quiet person. I was so excited that someone would love me. I mean, think about that, how you felt that someone would love you and care for you and a person that you cared about would love you and motivate you. I mean, think about how much love motivates. Think about what a parent will go to for a child when they see that, that, that car coming on the street corner and they see that child in the middle of traffic. What does love motivate them to do? It motivates them to put their own life aside because of their love. See, love is a motivator. And when we think about what love does, what God's love did by sending his son to us, it causes us to be in awe because love is measured by what it gives. And God gave the most greatest gift that heaven had to offer for you. And that motivates us. That strengthens us. That encourages us. God's not calling just for simple, I mean, obedience, forced obedience. He's calling us to respond to an act of love. Matter of fact, the greatest act of love the universe could even fathom. That's love. So Paul says, look to the love of God. That will give you strength. That will strengthen you when you see how much God loves you. And not only that, that's not the only motivator. That's the greatest of motivators. Because we we see, of course, John 3.16. That is probably the greatest one. For God so loved the world. He loves you. He loves me. He loves Tom, I think. He loves Tom. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should have eternal life. He loves Retie. He loves Gary. He loves Lloyd. He loves Connie. He loves Kelsey. He loves you, you. He loves everyone. So much so that he sent his son. He loves Aja and he loves David. He loves Nikki. He loves Ernesto and Patty. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. That's a motivator. That motivates us to want to tell other people about him. But that's not all. Look to the last part of verse 5. And to the steadfastness of Christ. We're to look at the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. The word steadfastness means endurance, perseverance, and patiently waiting for. See, we look to what Jesus endured for us and we find strength. And it's written in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Consider him. He's saying, look to him. Look to him who endured hostility, persecution, such hostility. I mean, can you, when you think about what Jesus went through, it really boggles the mind. 
that God, who needed nothing of himself, decided to give himself for us, and we would respond not with gratitude, but by killing him. But in this great act of love that he would humble himself, taking the form of a servant, and he would, he would come into time by assuming our flesh, that he would grow up among these people, making himself susceptible to the, the common ailments and, str- and, and, and the misunderstandings that we are prone to, that he would do nothing but love people, heal, and then he would be misunderstood, persecuted, hated, rejected, tried in an unjust trial, and then convicted even though there was no evidence of guilt, to be scourged, to have a crown of thorns shoved upon his head, to be mocked as people bowed down before him, being beaten, having his beard pulled out, scourged to have the flesh removed from his back, and then to carry his own means of execution to his execution. Stripped naked, and then nailed to the cross in one of the most extreme and horrid ways for a person to die. That's our example. That's who we look to for strength. And why did he do that? Because of his love. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, because he knew that it would result in our joy. He knew that his his humiliation would lead to our exaltation. His rejection would be our acceptance. That's where we draw strength from him. We follow the Lord's example. See, God did whatever it took to procure our redemption by sending us his son. The son did whatever it took to save us by submitting himself to his own creation, by taking our flesh and living the life of the common man. Betrayed, deserted, mocked, punched, Scourged, hung naked on a criminal's cross, and this he did willingly for you and I, so that we might be saved. He did for you to save you. And now he asks us to help make and take his message to the world. Are you ready to do whatever it takes? God did whatever it took for you. What are we willing to do for him to make his name known? There is no price too great. There is no sacrifice too much for us. See, God has a tendency when he calls us to himself to give up what is most precious to us. With Abraham, it was his his son Isaac. He was the son of promise, the son that God had promised him. And yet God asked him to sacrifice his son. I think there's a question for each one of us. What's our Isaac? What is that thing that we feel like we have to hold on to that God is asking us to sacrifice for the glory of his name? Is it power? Is it your job? Is it your career? Is it a relationship? What is he asking you to give up so that his name might be made known in and through your life? I promise you, whatever it is he's calling you to give up, it's not greater than what he calls you to receive. Don't hold on to it. Give it up for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We give you our Isaacs. We give you ourselves. And Lord, we ask that you do whatever it takes to make your name known here and not only here within this community, but among the world. Lord, please do whatever you need to do to help to make this a 
a people and a place where only you can receive glory. Lord, just as we, we shared today is, and what our heart is, our, our, our prayer is that only name, your name can receive power and glory from this place. That when people interact with the people that call Village Bible Church their home, that they see something that is different because you have birthed something by your spirit within their heart that is overflowing into other people that, that when they hear it, they say that surely God is working in that person and in that people and in that place. And Lord, we pray that you do so more and more. We ask you, please, we beg of you, Lord, to let this be a place, a, 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 a movement of the, the Holy Spirit of God. Lord, let it be a ground zero for a work of God that will flow not only here at the corner of Randall and Galena, not in just the other campuses, not in all of the churches of Aurora, but Lord, in the United States and around the world. Let what's happening here overflow. And Lord, may it be reciprocal. May we grow. May we be encouraged from what you're doing in the world. May we learn from one another. And Lord, please make us more and more diverse. Let this be such a group of people in a place where you bring the broken where those who are those who are coming from backgrounds, where those who have been rejected from society, may they find peace, may they find healing, may they find solace here. Because Lord, we ask you that it might be a movement of your spirit. Because Lord, you have told us within your word that those who come to you pleading for you, that you will generously give your spirit to them. And Lord, that's what we're asking for. We don't want to go through the motions any longer, but we want to see people transformed. We want to see you be God in this place. So, Lord, please transform us, break us, mold us, do whatever you need to do. If you need to do a Gideon moment here where you you break us down to build us up, let it be so. But, Lord, let us not become addicted to our own fame, our own prestige, and to think that we are something when we're not. When we realize that we're without you, without your life-giving spirit working within us, we are nothing. So, Lord, please touch hearts and minds. And also, Lord, I ask that you touch the hearts and minds of many of the men and women here. And I pray that you grow up and send them. Uh, You grow them up and send them. Deploy them into the world, to the deepest and darkest places. Whether it means working with those who have been lost in sex trafficking or those that are just lost in their sin and idolatry, for those that are beaten and broken, those that are lost in war zones, those that are in prison, those that are behind walls of dictatorships. Lord, please help us to know how to invade the kingdom of the enemy because we know that his kingdom is breaking and the light and life of Christ is causing it to crack because his power is being made known in our world and in our lives. And we pray that you might do so more and more. Help us to keep a short account of sin, and may may we be a people and a place where righteousness dwells, but bring glory to your name, and not because of who we are, but because of who you are, and your name is attached to it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.